0: I'm Mark Henick. This is so-called normal. Hey, folks. Welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Henick. Today on the show, we have Instagram influencer, uh, actress, all-around beautiful person, Kenzie Brenna. Uh, I so much enjoyed my conversation with Kenzie. We, we went deep into her into her past, into her history. We, we talked about uh, really interesting issues around body image and how she advocates and and shares herself so freely with the world. And she was just such an inspiring person. I've been following her for a while on on social media. So it was really uh, an honor to have her uh, come into the studio and and share her stories with me. So uh, I know you'll like it uh, and really take a lot and be inspired by by what she shares. So uh, without further ado, here's Kenzie Brenna on So-Called Normal.
1: I'm not originally from Toronto. I'm from more of a rural little uh, town called Uxbridge, Ontario. Mm -hmm. Not too far from here, but far enough that it's the country.
0: Was there a... Uh, this is going to sound like a weirdly specific question. Is there a pig farm out that way? That <laughs> Probably. <laughs> no, because I feel like I was on the way somewhere, and I yeah. stopped at a pig farm near a town that sounded oh, like that, interesting. and I bought the best bacon that I've ever had in my life. Oh, I, oh I don't know gosh. if you're a vegetarian or not, so I apologize. I do practice but, veganism. Okay, or but, vegan. Okay, but... so let's not talk <laughs> no, all I'm about okay. bacon. Then. <laughs> I'm okay.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not sensitive towards that stuff. That's okay. Uh, I don't know specifically about the pig farm, but right. probably. There's a really fantastic berry farm called Twinkleberries. Oh. Which is just the most quintessential small town <laughs> name. I actually lived right across from it, and we would go quite often growing up to Twinkleberry Farms. It's so it <laughs> sounds, sounds like a storybook. I know. It's, it, it's well, true. Uxbridge is so it's so away from the rest of the world. It's almost like a Pleasantville mm. where it's just in its own little bubble, and so you grow up, and everything is you know on that surface level, everybody's kind of happy and. The bad stuff, you know, it just kind of, people just push that stuff down and they pretend like it doesn't exist. And then when you leave, when you come to Toronto or when you go to the real world, you're like, oh, (laughs) oh, right. All of the real stuff is just coming to the surface and people are much more authentic and speak their mind here. And they're much more themselves where Uxbridge, I find that it's, you know, there's one type of culture there. It's white, white. Yes, that is exactly it. I'm glad you said that. Yes, exactly. I grew up in uh,
0: probably not as small of a town, but Mm -hmm. a small city Mm -hmm. uh, on the East Coast as well, which was very much my experience. Totally,
1: totally. And then there's like something that's really wholesome about small towns, too. You. Because it is like a smaller community, you do feel affected by one another, where I feel like we do lose that a little bit in the city. Cities can be really isolating. Sure. I don't know my neighbors. Right. Right. And in Exbridge, you do. In Xbridge, you talk to them quite frequently, actually. And so... It would be really interesting to take the beneficial parts of cities and of, you know, the country living and mm. put them together and somehow marry I think that's the suburbs, isn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But I don't want to live there either. <laughs> so, uh, big family or what kind
1: uh, no, uh, no, sort of. Um, I'm very. My family's very divorced. Okay. Ultra divorced. Okay. <laughs> Extra it's divorced like family. Really mastering uh, divorce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We Nailed it. We <laughs> nailed it. Um, my mom and my dad were together, and then they split when I was seven. Uh, and I have my brother, and then they both got together with different partners after that. And I have a half sister, and I have. A few stepsisters and a stepbrother, and then another stepbrother. So Mm -hmm. it's all
0: mixed. Yeah, it's all
1: it's all mixed. Yeah. Uh, Did you ever?
0: You know, because I I came from a blended family as well, so maybe I'm projecting all my own personal stuff onto you. No, I, which don't worry, I do that to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) um, Did you ever feel like, though, that, uh, especially as a younger kid, uh, trying to find your place Mm -hmm. in that mix Mm -hmm. of who you know is this the original family or where do I fit with the new family? Yeah, Yeah,
1: totally. You know what? There was never a language around that. I don't think my parents didn't have, they weren't necessarily so forward thinking to think like, maybe we should all sit down with each other right. and discuss the dynamics here and try to bring the kids in and discuss it with them, too. So I got a lot of education through movies. Mm. And that's not... You're not supposed to be educated through, you know, rom-coms or, right. yeah. or movies about, you know, like The Parent Trap. Like, right. that's what I thought was going to happen eventually. I was like, oh, I just got to get mom and dad back, just like, yeah. just like Lindsay Lohan did in The Parent Trap, you know? Yeah. So it was hard for me to really grasp reality because I was so submerged in film. It was difficult for me to understand mom and dad aren't getting back together and your place is to just kind of float around between the two mm-hmm. and also have a stepmom and also have a stepdad and hopefully everybody's just happy. Mm-hmm. But there were there are times where I look back and I'm like, I was having... So much anxiety over it. Like I was exhibiting mm-hmm. signs of having anxiety from a very, very, very young age, and How nobody young? addressed it. Uh, around seven, yeah, yeah. When they split, we were living in this house in Little Britain, which is even smaller than Xbridge. <laughs> <laughs> it, like it's called Little Britain. Right. Like, I mean, <laughs> tiny and, and so white, and like yeah. <laughs> the whitest, most tiniest town yeah. in Ontario. Um, but we moved from there, and we moved my mom and I, we and my brother, we moved to um to Markham, uh, and my dad would leave he would pick us up for a night and then he would leave and I wasn't understanding it like that transition Mm. period was really hard and so I would just freak out to the point where I would be like on the ground I would be on the ground crying and I wouldn't be able to breathe and it was getting really bad to the point where my mom brought us to a counseling session okay and uh she we Kind of just talked it out, but it was just one session and then I was mm. then we were left again. But I started to have problems in school. That mm. was where the anxiety was really starting to manifest. Whereas I would go to school and I would realize that I was alone. I didn't have mom or dad there. Mm. I didn't, you know, it was an unfamiliar uh, environment and the teachers were, you know, had to be in charge of 20 to 30 kids mm-hmm. and so I would start to just get up and I would start to cry or I would just get up and just wander and start walking around the classroom and just mm-hmm. start to kind of want to be by their desk or kind of just or even just be a nuisance like not wanting mm-hmm. to do my work and just yeah and that's happened like looking back now I mean that's happened from the time that I can remember to just and then when they would sit me down to try to do my work it's like I couldn't learn. Like I was just, I was so anxious that I couldn't learn Mm -hmm. and I couldn't focus. And I constantly asked to just like go home and see my mom and Mm -hmm. I'm feeling sick. I don't want to be here. You know, that kind of thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So, and neither one of my parents were like, hmm, there's something going on here. <laughs> right. But, like, <laughs> I mean, like
0: you said, it was it's a different time. Totally. They did the best with the tools. They yeah,
1: had. yeah, right. And, yeah. like, you know, in, in our spaces of, of talking about mental health and mental illness and stuff, you know, symptoms are symptoms. And, That's you know, right. if a kid was, like, having a fever, you would take them out of school. And if a kid mm-hmm. is being disruptive or having behavioral problems, it's the same thing. Like, you address them. Right. You know, you take them to an appropriate doctor for them. It's not just, hey – We have to get you. You have to change your behavior. You just you just have to focus or you just have to pay attention. You just have to stay in your seat. Something bigger going on. Um, But
0: so so what was the result of all this for you then? Did it eventually culminate in something or or what? Did you ever get help for these these Mm. struggles?
1: Yes. Yes. And no. Mm. The anxiety never really went away. Um, It it ended up uh, it. In high school, I ended up developing even like worse coping mechanisms for it. And high school was, you know, naturally a dark time for everybody. Sure. And then if you're just going through stuff unresolved from from your childhood, it's like extra dark. Mm-hmm. Um, a nice another layer of dark on there. Well, uh, what do
0: you mean by that? How did it? How did you cope?
1: Uh, I started self-harming, oh. and I started having more problems with eating. That was something that um that happened when we were moving around after the after the first initial divorce. When we were moving around, um we moved Moved from Markham to Stoville mm-hmm. um, back to and then went to Uxbridge um, so I went to a few different schools and I started to overeat and I started to hide food mm-hmm. and this is a symptom that they see in children in foster care where mm-hmm. they'll start to just hide food around around their um, around their foster home and mm-hmm. stuff and it has to do with feeling alone and The food kind of gives you something that's safe, something that you can rely on, something that you know is there, and then you get totally exactly. So I started doing that, and I was I wasn't even I was like a very normal sized child, but people were like mentioning my weight often, and Hmm. so I just kind of grew up knowing that like oh I'm just I'm a little bit bigger than others, but like you look back on pictures and I'm. It's I'm so I'm just a kid like I'm just a child. I'm
0: I'm not a I've never been a young girl, but I imagine that this is something that most young girls experience.
1: Absolutely. And like young uh, any kid that's just, you know, that just is slightly uh, just maybe looks a little bit like chubby or Mm -hmm. just I just like want to. It's just so normal, though. That's just their Mm -hmm. that's their body. That's, you know, and. So with me and the doing little things like binge eating when no one's around and doing that as a kid Mm. and then also having people comment on my body and my weight and stuff and just little stuff like, oh, that's baby fat and you'll eventually grow out of it, you know, Mm. having those types of comments or. You event, like when you reach – when you become a teenager, you can start dieting and then it'll like come off. You Just like little stuff like that. That when I did become a teenager and you're going through those self-actualization moments of, wow, I'm a person and there's this society and that's affecting me and I'm affecting it. You start to really conceptualize of like what's going on with me and like why am I messed up or why do I have these problems and then – but I didn't have the tools to also – Fix them, and so I just started to just express myself in really like just negative ways, like self-harming or restricting food, and then unfortunately binging because I was so hungry.
0: Was your relationship with food, or the restricting food, was that another form of self-harm, or was that something else?
1: Um. I think it's definitely a form of self-harm objectively, but I think that as, but subjectively, I think it's a form of control. Mm. If you restrict, then you're doing good. If you restrict, then you are following the rules of, you know, this is the way to become thinner. This is the way to eventually get happiness. You just Mm -hmm. restrict and limit your food intake and stuff. And then but then you when you binge, you feel so guilty that then the site, it's so cyclical. Right. It just starts again.
0: I'm fascinated by this idea of, of control in particular mm-hmm. that you've mentioned mm-hmm. that, you know, especially with with young kids who feel out of control with everything. You know, yeah. they can't control that mom or dad left. They can't yeah. control where they live or how they live. Right. But they yeah. can control this. I think that's similar for suicide and, and mm-hmm. uh, non-suicidal oh self-injury as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it should be something, it should be a conversation that we should be having with kids existentially, just when they're young, just saying, like, there's a lot out of our control. You know, we really only get control even and even this is, you know, debatable. We only get control of how we react to things. Mm -hmm. But that's, of course, you know, when. If you're, when you're made up of like chemicals and neurons and, mm. you know, uh, and a nervous system, like really what's in your control? Like how much free will right. do we really have?
0: Yeah, I'm so, this is such an interesting area for me because I'm a big proponent of this idea mm-hmm. of – Free will, in theory, Mm -hmm.
1: theory. totally. It's a really great theory. It
0: is, but then again, I also don't want to, and I think this is a problem in the mental health space. I don't want to bang the drum so hard on Mm. biological determinism that people think they have no free will, that they're a victim of their brain. Well, you're not. Right. You can tell your brain what to do. Right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And 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 then it goes in the opposite direction too. Where absolutely. Yeah. And and I think like opening up that conversation is really important and understanding that like it's so everybody falls along the spectrum somewhere of how much one is affecting the other. And I love that I'm now in that space where I where I realize that and I recognize that where sometimes I'll have I'll have thoughts of like just unconscious thoughts of like maybe you should check the stove, maybe mm. you should like check the door like one more time. Like three times isn't enough. And then I'll realize that like, oh actually I have freedom in this choice right now to either yes, go and check the door or check the stove or I could challenge myself and expose myself right. to my fear and not. And that's taken a lot of practice, but also it's so rewarding afterwards when you're able to just challenge and get over, get over those, those, um, those humps. But I think that I try to tell people this in, in our space all of the time that of course you have a choice, but also like, it's okay sometimes to just do things automatically. Like that's what, we we unfortunately were victims of our automatic behavior all of the time sure. we just jump to something we just have one thought to two thoughts three you know and then yeah. a thousand thoughts all of a sudden consume you and and it's really difficult to get control of your mind and so I think that when when we're kids growing up having these conversations with kids like you know we don't get to control the way that the that the earth spins and the way that right. we're in you know this massive universe and we didn't none of us actually ask to be here we get a ha- we could have those conversations as children and have them them have a framework of control and everything mm-hmm. or or just like their place in the cosmos yeah. but we don't well
0: and give them more control over something right right that yeah, they can absolutely. make some decisions in absolutely
1: I've, I've been talking to one of my best friends about this she has a uh, six-year-old daughter and giving the daughter control over how much she wants to eat mm-hmm. like not forcing her to finish what's on her plate mm-hmm. has been really powerful because kids know best you know yeah. if Your child is is objectively under eating. That's a different story. But most kids don't... They'll they will eat when they are yeah. hungry. Well, and
0: this is such a uh, an East Coast cultural thing mm-hmm. too that that I learned was mm-hmm. that uh, we grew up poor uh, and of Irish Scottish <laughs> de- descent. Right, right. So right. you had to eat everything on your plate because oh, you didn't know you didn't right. know where it was coming from. Absolutely. next, right. Absolutely. And that's yeah. how our parents were raised mm-hmm. too. That you don't know when your next meal is coming, so you have to eat it all. Mm-hmm. However, it's not a coincidence that there's an obesity e- epidemic right, uh, in, right. in in an unhealthy respect, not not certainly not in a self image one. yeah. But yeah. In terms of yeah. affecting their health, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, I I think that um, part of it is, is taking in that social and cultural aspect as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely, totally. There's going to be families where they do live. You know, they're you know in a scarcity mindset. Where, yeah, that's that's the word for it. Right. Yeah, yeah and they and they they will either eat, like even hoard resources because mm-hmm. they don't know if they'll get them back again they don't know if they'll have you know the finances to be able to purchase them again and so keep mm-hmm. everything now and eat everything that's on your plate because who right. knows if you'll have it and then there are people that live quite comfortably that still force that, that yeah. will still force kids to to eat past their comfort level or yeah. or eat stuff that they genuinely don't like and they don't want to eat right and I and you understand it from a from a perspective of you want them to get their greens and you want them to get their fruit and stuff, but there just has to be a better way of (laughs) doing that instead of kind of having them have this messed up relationship with food from the beginning. You know, like food should always be a place of, oh, I'm enjoying this. That's why I'm eating it. And it's nutritious for my body and that's why I'm eating it. This is fuel. It should never be like, I have to eat this, unfortunately. Like, you know, I I don't want to eat this right now, but I'm like... That's, but that's that can come at like a that I sure. can come at that a thousand different lang- I, angles as well. I
0: grew up on Kraft Dinner and gummy bears, right? So yeah. I think, <laughs> and I turned out fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and I'm just talking about college. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, so totally. okay, so, totally. So when did you um, leave this small town and go out and try okay. to figure things out?
1: Well, I went through. A bit of a rough patch when i was 16 i was just i was going through a lot of the stuff with regarding self-harm and mm. i was staying out a lot and i was um you know going through substance abuse and my mom had no idea what to do my mom and my stepdad had no idea what to do and i was really disruptive at home and mm. i and you know as like one of their last resorts they i was kicked out and mm. so i ended up like I was homeless for a few weeks and I was bouncing around from place to place and I was riding and I was like and I came downtown to Toronto because I knew a few people here. And the city just seemed so much more available than just me mm. kind of being in an Uxbridge and not having a home and, and everything. And so I was here for a few weeks and then I lived in Aurora for about a year uh, with my dad because I couldn't go back home to my mom Her, things were just a mm. little bit. Uh, two tents between us Mm -hmm. and then after that I went back to Uxbridge and then then a year later I ended up coming to Toronto. So I've been in Toronto for about eight or nine years now Mm. Um, and it's definitely been... The city's fantastic, but I definitely miss some of that sure. country life. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely for sure, for sure. miss some of that. And country I find
0: life. too, especially, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm too young to be saying this, but as I get older, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it more and more. Yeah, totally. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, again, there's just something about it. But then I leave the city and I go to the country, and then I'm like, okay, got to get back to real <laughs> yeah. <your> life now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that know? was a nice two days. Yeah, it's time yeah. to go. <laughs> so I'm always unhappy. Sure, <laughs> yeah. sure.
0: Well, you know, actually, that's an interesting point in terms of. Um, uh, your frame of reference uh, mm-hmm. that if you're always looking for something else yeah. beyond what you currently yeah. have.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. Like, I mean, I definitely practice more gratitude than I ever have. Mm. And so being in the city isn't the worst thing, but I do try to put goals down of places that I want to travel and I try to be open-minded of like this. My this is probably not my home. I'll probably mm-hmm. find another place to call home and who knows in the world where that will be. Mm. And just trying to be open-minded and like, Stay excited for it, mm. even though that could be super scary. And like, yeah. I don't know how that'll end up. What's
0: What's scarier for you, though, being open minded or settling down?
1: Um, he, settling down yeah. for sure. Yeah, why? For sure. What's so scary? For about sure. That? Uh, I don't want to. I It's like I, I don't want to miss out on the world. I so mm. a part of my, of my anxiety growing up was my mom has anxiety. She's very, very, very specific travel anxiety, and so we'd never ever traveled a Mm -hmm. lot when we were kids at like almost ever if there was rainy weather or snow like she would keep us home because she was scared something would happen on the bus or in a car with somebody else Mm -hmm. and so and planes were totally out of the question and everything and then that definitely was transferred a little bit onto me and so I didn't travel out of the country I didn't get on a plane until I was 23 and that was like That was so scary. And then also the best type of life change ever, where I was like, oh my God, I'm above a city right (laughs) now. This is. This is so wild. How can this be? And like I was just such a perspective shift too of just realizing that there were just like tens of millions of lives that I was just passing by. And I was going from New York to California and we just kept going over city over city and I was watching it on the monitor. And I was just like – I was such a nerd. I was just like geeking out the whole time. It's still one of my
0: favorite experiences. I do it all the time and I love it. Yeah.
1: It's – such a fantastic perspective shift i think to just be up there and just to realize how many stories and how many lives are being lived and just that you're not the only one Mm. at all and that was huge and and so settling down will make me feel like i'll I'll miss that i'll miss like finding out the magic in this little town or this little or this city or you know finding just different lives to connect to and stuff i definitely think that home is what you make it and Mm so If I do travel, if I end up traveling quite a bit in my life, I'll just try to make home where Wherever I can and yeah. settle in with
0: that. Well, while you've made Toronto your home, uh, you've become an Instagram star. <laughs> you, you know, you've certainly developed I don't know what a following. Yeah. Yeah. Uh <laughs> that wasn't a question. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, so how did you, how did you make oh, that bridge then? From from struggling, from really still trying yeah. to figure yourself out, mm-hmm. to really being somebody that other people look to as yeah. having it all figured well, out. Oh my gosh, right? yeah.
1: <laughs> Which I don't. Right. <laughs> um, we'll talk more about that yeah, part totally. too. <laughs> but, yeah. but, I'm sure uh, you know. felt that too. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I yeah. still I feel like
0: that all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but how did you get there? How did you build that and, and speak so openly?
1: Yeah. Um. So I, I ended up doing a weight loss program a few years ago. And this was before I had any knowledge about the self-acceptance community, the mental health community. Like I had no – I still didn't know that those things – existed online. Mm -hmm. And I ended up signing up for for this, um, like weight loss and fitness program. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to take this like, really seriously. So I made an Instagram account for it. And I like, started posting up about, you know, my body and just like my workouts that I was doing. Um, And I slowly but surely, like, realized that there was such a huge fitness community Mm -hmm. and that this fitness community was so supportive and so incredible. And I'd never been a part of something like that before. So I started to post more often and this community was just super awesome and really, really, really great. And eventually I was was losing weight and I was losing weight and I was losing weight and I went through a plateau, which is to be expected and to Mm -hmm. happen and then all of the bad stuff started to come up my poor body image started to come up mm. i started to like really deal with the self hate again it just like it all seemed to just have been like somewhere in my body just like stayed it's 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 as if it stayed hidden throughout right. this weight loss and then it just came up again and i was right. like oh my god i thought that all of this stuff would just leave if well, i just the weight if problem, i just right? yeah if i just <laughs> lost out. weight yeah exactly yeah. um and so i i was like freaking out and just really 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 in a bad headspace and i ended up searching a hashtag and this is the this is this could be the power of social media mm-hmm. but i searched self acceptance cuz i didn't know what else to do i didn't mm-hmm. i didn't I had no idea what to do and under the self acceptance hashtag i ended up seeing all of these women that were just embracing themselves and i had ne- i literally <laughs> had no idea that that could even exist mm-hmm. and i was so inspired i was so deeply inspired that it's like i was Hijacked out of that moment, and the bat, the those bad feelings just completely went away, just through being inspired through this inspiration. Mm. And then I went home, and I just ended up following like hundreds of different accounts that night. And I had no idea that you could love yourself as you are. That seemed like such a foreign concept to me. Mm. And then the next day, through being that inspired, I just took a photo of myself in my sports bra and my leggings, just sitting down, how I looked, and not hiding anything, not posing, not in a fitness related picture, I just was existing. And I posted online and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is so scary. What the heck? And from that moment on, I've just been progressively getting more and more transparent with my journey online. And trying to open up about stuff and trying to connect with others with their own journeys. Mm -hmm. And I ended up developing a mental health narrative and diving into that community and then diving into yeah the body acceptance community. And from there, just growing the community, the self-love community, and just Mm -hmm. trying to be an advocate of self-love and self-knowledge and mental health and self-care. And it's somehow it's grown and, and which is really great. I'm really, really, really grateful for it. Uh, and it's it's the best. It's, it was just so unexpected. Like I never yeah. I, and I mean, it was it's so wild that I posted that photo because I was the type of person that like I would never even be with my partner unless it was like any any boyfriend that I ever had. It would be like lights off. Like, don't mm. let's just like. I was so uncomfortable with my body that for me to publicly post about it was so not Kenzie. And now it is. And now, you know, you just I took the leap and it was the best leap I've ever taken.
0: So what have you learned then about self-love, about body acceptance, self-esteem, all of these things that that you didn't know when you started this out, when you first posted that picture?
1: I thought for... When I first started the journey, similar to the weight loss journey, when you first start it, you think that like, okay, I'm going to take care of all of the bad stuff now. Like I'm going to take care of all my unresolved issues now. And you realize that like you don't live in a vacuum. Mm. So society is always going to kind of be there. There's always going to be these hurdles to get over. There's always going to be billboards of women that don't look like you or men Mm. that don't look like you or whatever it is. And you're just always going to have to remind yourself that. That's what we're fixing. That's, like, what we're trying to change. Mm -hmm. Because there's moments where I'll still come to a place where I'm like, oh, I don't feel good about myself today. I'm not confident. I'm – I don't think that I'm that intelligent. Like, I don't know what to – I don't – I just don't feel good about myself. And then – that was surprising me uh, a year into the journey of where I was like, isn't this supposed Mm -hmm. to go away? Am I, aren't I supposed to not deal with this anymore? And it's not that you won't ever deal with it again. It's just that you deal with it differently. It's that you deal with it less or you deal with it differently or you have healthier coping mechanisms. You know, you reach out instead of internalizing it. You don't isolate yourself. You, you check in with your community, you self care, you practice whatever self care rituals, you know, uh, That bring you to a place of well-being. It's instead of, you know, harming yourself or instead of isolating or instead of keeping secrets or, or, you know, not telling anybody what you're going through. It's just you deal with it differently. And so it affects you differently. It doesn't it might not affect you as deeply as it did before. It might not stick around as long. You know, you might bounce back. You have more resiliency and you have. There's less of a of a period for you to recover in those bad moments, right?
0: A lot of young people, especially who reach out to me, uh, I notice a similar theme in in things that they say, and, and I'm wondering if you notice this too, where. They almost have this narrative of of why did this have to happen to me? Why mm-hmm. did I get cursed with this when everybody else is so normal? Everybody else right. is fine. Why yeah. did I pull the short straw and get cursed with this? Right. And, you know, why do I have to just manage this for the rest of my life? Yeah. Do you think that that's actually the case, or to a certain degree, is this just real life? This is how living real <laughs> life is that we that we manage these kinds of struggles.
1: Yeah, uh, a little bit of both, actually. Mm. I think that the question, "Why is this happening to me?" that's the most that's the realist that's like you're in it when you ask that question you're in it it's very hard to get out of that perspective and i felt that perspective like a month ago where i was like i don't think anybody's ever felt like this before and then of course there's you know the objective part of me the this the 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 Kenzie that's like girl you know that other people have (laughs) felt this before and and you talk about that all the time but when you're in it you just have to experience that like I think you just have to realize that you are alone in your head at times and that's one essence of being human and i can't take that away from people Mm. because at the same time that's also the birthplace of all of your creative you know inspirations and and the things that you come up with in your imagination no one is no one else is there for that either Mm. and so i have to remind myself that there's a flip side to that coin but there's also like i think we have more of those those moments of like, of existential dread of like, I don't, I think that I'm the only one that goes through this. Everybody else is normal. What is the meaning of all of this? Why am I here? Why mm. am I being put through this? I think we're pressured into that perspective more than what we should be just based on us on society on the fact that we don't actually check we don't grow up checking in with each other we don't grow up in a 150 person tribe where everybody knows each other and everybody's quite involved with what you're doing and what you're thinking Mm. and what you're saying and how you're feeling your little yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly exactly and so I think we're put through a little bit more isolation than what we actually need to be going through. But some of the my again, some of the greatest perspective shifts that I've had have been out of that pain, out of the pain of I'm so alone. I'm so alone inside of my head. I'm so alone in these experiences. And then for me to just like just grieve and deal with that, just just the idea that like there's nobody else in here but me. Yeah. And going through that and then, you know, like you shed your tears, you have like your very respected and much needed breakdown. And then you again, then you wake up again and you do Mm. it all over again and then you find a connection with somebody, you know, talking about it with with you or talking about it with a friend who say I've gone through that, you know, and then you feel a little bit less alone. And then the pain eventually it goes away that that painfulness of being alone inside of your head or. Why is this happening to me? It eventually it does go away and you do make sense of it.
0: Yeah. One of the best slash worst pieces of advice <laughs> that I've ever received uh, after uh, my mother died a few years ago unexpectedly.
1: Mm. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh,
0: thank you. And, wow. and and it's you know, it was a really difficult experience because mm-hmm. she was young. It was like I said, unexpected. But um, somebody told me at some point along the way, this is this is going to suck. Mm. And it's supposed to. Yeah. Let it, let it suck. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because if you don't, then you're not dealing with it. We find so many other ways to try to make life not suck for a little while. Totally. When sometimes it just does and that's okay and we have to ride it out and let Oh,
1: my it pass, gosh. Absolutely. And right? validating yeah. that, that pain and that sadness is instead of somebody saying, oh, let me distract you and like, let me try to make you happy. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in that. And it's not to say that it isn't going to hurt. And it's not to say that it isn't going to feel like it's going to last forever. But it doesn't. And I don't know what happens in the brain. I've been trying to figure it out. Like I've been trying to do research on neurobiology of like what happens when you're in those intense moments of sadness. Because for me personally the way that it feels is like. This mm-hmm. moment's going to last forever. The
0: blinders go on. Yeah. I, I talked about this in my TED Talk, how uh-huh. it's just this complete collapse totally. in on this moment. Yeah. That's all you see.
1: Yeah. Oh, your TED Talk was so, so fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> it's obviously, it's one of my favorites. But you, you mentioned it so perfectly when you were talking about the... Um, when somebody cuts you off and you get in that heated moment of where you're like, I'm going to say every swear word known to man (laughs) uh, and you're just, you're so angry or you're so upset that this person cut you off and then that feeling goes away and then you go about your drive. But for some people it doesn't go away. To me, that's such a beautiful way to put it because in those moments of sadness or in those moments of angst or anger or what whatever negative emotion it is it feels like it's going to last forever and there's something about that about like a part of the brain that like Experiences time like it shuts down, or something yeah. happens where it just feels like. I've, I've said this to infinite. people that
0: I need a neuropsychologist or a neurobiologist yeah. <laughs> best friend now because Absolutely. I've got so many of these questions too. But yeah. but you know you're right, and and you get so locked in this place. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I've learned through the mindfulness tradition, mm-hmm. I think, or mindfulness practice. Uh, is that one of the things that keeps you stuck there is you're grasping to it. You're mm-hmm. focusing on it. Yeah. You're not letting it go. Right. So yeah, it's not going to go because you're not letting it absolutely. go. Absolutely. Yeah. So instead just letting it suck and let it pass away.
1: Yeah, right. totally, totally. Yeah, that's... that's hard That's hard too. It's just about the hardest thing in the world. And
0: that's why I said it was also the worst piece of (laughs) advice because it sucks. It's awful. It's terrible.
1: Yeah, totally. I know. I've been practicing mindfulness now and I've been doing my meditations and stuff and I've been realizing that like the power of harnessing your mind and harnessing your focus and Mm. where your attention goes when you're not paying attention to it is so powerful. I cannot tell you how many times where i've realized that what i'm thinking isn't conducive to how i want to be feeling right. and then i i remind myself to think about better things or think about it in a more constructive and positive way yeah. because so often our 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 minds go to our, our default mode network sure. and we start you know getting into ex- situations that we can't undo or thing we fantasize about the future and it might not be great right. and we go about it and we do that over and over again and then all of a sudden we feel like crap and yeah.
0: well it turns out the mind is basically a muscle like anything else the more you practice right. certain ways of thinking yeah and exactly. a lot of people don't believe me when i tell them that you can practice other ways of thinking and yeah. that it's really hard at first but it yeah. gets easier over time and yeah, have you done absolutely. cognitive behavioral therapy or dbt or anything i've done cbt, like, yeah. CBT yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so it sounds like yeah, <laughs> that, been, that's what I've i was getting. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've
1: been doing that. I work with a therapist online um, doing some CBT exercises, and they've been really, really, really helpful yeah. for me to check on in on my behavior because I so I struggle with um, – when I was 18, I had a full-blown OCD paranoia uh, episode that lasted for about a year and a half mm-hmm. where I was it, – again, it, like, it's a form of anxiety, right? And sure. so it was – I was terrified that <laughs> – it sounds it sounds so silly when you're out of it, but when you're in it, right. it was like it's the worst. It's, yeah. yeah. It's like this is so this is so real, man. Yeah. Um, but I was scared that people were trying to poison me and I didn't know who this who pe- these people were and I didn't know mm. whether or not it was one person or whether or not it was a group or whether or not it was my family or who it was, but I was convinced that it was just so easy to poison people. Why wouldn't somebody be trying to poison me? Mm. And so I was going through how do I not, you know, how do I not, like, if something's, like, left on this desk or if something, if this apple, you know, if somebody put something on this apple, like, how could I eat it? How could I drink this water? Right. And and I was going through these rituals of having to clean stuff and having to wash certain things and having to only eat at certain times. And mm-hmm. it was a really bad period of my life. but. When you I have I, I got over it to the point where I can, you know, I can function. I sure. I dropped out of school for a bit and I had to quit my job, but now it's totally manageable. And so when I'm have when I I realize now when I'm super stressed and when I'm not taking time, when I'm not taking in uh, a couple of hours for self care or when I'm not checking in with myself, I'll start to do what I mentioned earlier where I'll start to check the stove sure. a little too often. Slide back into I'll that check, old yeah, comfortable way
0: of being. Totally,
1: yeah. totally. And And I was like, oh, maybe you could prevent this. Like, maybe you could start noticing the warning signs. Like, maybe when you're stressed, all of a sudden you start feeling out of control. And instead of either embracing it or instead of handling your stressors, you start adding in these coping mechanisms of checking the stove, checking the lock, making sure every element is off, like, you know, a 100 times. And then all of a sudden you're late for your appointment or you're late for your meeting. So checking in with myself often, realizing that, like, oh, my schedule is a little too, too full for this week, I have to rearrange some stuff or else it's just going to affect my health. Sure. Like, you know, and, and phrasing it like that yeah. makes it easier for me to just yeah. reorganize my schedule so then that way I don't get into those head spaces. But CBT has been like...
0: Helping you plan oh, with that. Gosh. and say, So yeah. incredible. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, it's like there's a lot of exposure that goes with sure. it. But like, yeah, it's the best at the same time. I actually just mm-hmm. read. Um, do you read a lot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. So I just read Jeffrey Lieberman's book, The Untold History of, Psycho- of Psychiatry. Right. Yeah. I
0: haven't read it, but it, I've, I'm familiar oh. with it. Oh, yeah. my God.
1: Yeah. Changed my it's one of the best he was, books he was I've head ever. Head of NAMI
0: or, or not NAMI, um, SAMHSA or something like yeah, that. Yeah, in
1: the yeah. And he was on the board of the American Psychiatric Association. Yes. And yeah. he's he's phenol- everything in that book. You will love it because yeah. you will just have so much knowledge of where our therapists are coming from right. and and just the the system that they've come from and the wild the the story. Between when they were treating the mind as if it was the soul or the spirit and then Mm. the separation between neuroscience and psychiatry when there was actually like what's 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 physicalizing in the brain versus what's manifesting from it. Right. right? And oh, my God, it's just so. What a great
0: way to phrase it. Yeah. Manifesting from it versus. Totally. uh, Totally. Chicken or egg kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Mm. And. I, we've come so far and everything from it but there's this there's the one story of I think his name's Tim Beck who created CBT Cognitive Behavioral Aaron, Therapy Aaron, Aaron Beck. Beck Aaron yeah. Beck uh, there's the story of how he was you know he like he loved Freud and he wanted uh, to be a psychoanalyst and he was like I'm going to pr- I'm going to make sure that it's right I'm going to prove that it's right and then all of his research came back <laughs> that it's not right at all well I wouldn't say <laughs> then, it's not right not, I'm not a Freudian by any yeah, means yeah, yeah. but <laughs> yeah yeah but it was mostly not right <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) He was realizing that apparently, yeah, with his uh, patients who struggled with depressive disorders, that if you uh, make them feel better about their situation, they actually are happier. Who knew?
0: I think it's actually both. It's it's you're drawing awareness to all the reasons mm-hmm. of why they are the way they are by mm-hmm. digging into their childhood mm-hmm. or whatever else. Yeah, but at yeah. some point you got to move on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> at some <laughs> point you need some skills. Great, yes, You got the awareness, absolutely. but what are you going to do about it? Absolutely. Right?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's a it's a really 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 great story. I learned a lot from it, yeah. and I. Aaron, so much respect. Aaron Beck yeah. is
0: still kicking actually he's in his 90s now oh, at the Beck amazing. Institute yeah his whole family I follow him on uh, social media
1: oh amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. oh so incredible I recommend checking out. oh absolutely I will absolutely there's um, a really good story in there of Robert Spitzer who created the DSM3 mm. but it was the DSM both DSMs prior to that weren't Research base; they weren't right. scientific. And then the DSM three, they brought together this task force, which mm-hmm. sounds like from a Marvel movie, like we're the task force <laughs> of the DSM. A bunch of psychiatrists, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then they were making sure that everything was coming from. Objective of empirical evidence right. and th- how so many psychoanalysts push back from it because sure. so much of it was faith based, and how he was just quite adamant and spent like hours and years just like putting together all of this research and all this information yes. for the DSM 3 to come out, and how it's you know transformed psychiatry since and stuff. Well,
0: and there's certainly always controversy on every edition of yeah. the
1: DSM now, yeah. yeah. I know that's yeah, there's a lot of drama regarding it. There's, there's always, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's another thing about the mental health community is that it's we're all talking about our experiences and i think that it's just it's such a broken system that we have of because somebody might come to me and they'll say like i you know i'm experiencing this and you know and i'm not a clinician like i'm not a healthcare practitioner and so i can just be there for them and offer them what i would offer myself in that situation right and i would a, I would want everybody to have a therapist because I would want everybody to have a doctor. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's just that's common practice. But what mm-hmm. type of therapy is is useful for a person right. and what should they be doing in therapy and what therapist is the right therapist yeah. for them? You know, it, well, like, it and, just,
0: and this is it. And, and people, I think. It's a very attractive notion to think, well, my brain is just broken and I need to find the right medication to fix it. Right. Unfortunately, it's a lot more complicated than that. And medication doesn't even work. Actually, medication only works for about a third of people. Mm -hmm. But psychotherapy actually works really well, it turns out, better than medication in a lot of respects but it's yeah. finding that right therapist the right type of therapy totally. and and more importantly i think is whatever therapist you get whatever type of therapy you're doing keep doing it unless mm-hmm. it's hurting unless it's doing something bad but keep doing it because it takes practice and you get the you get better at it over time
1: oh my god you know. absolutely yeah i think that the idea that it could only be one or the other like right. you could take medication and then be totally fine i think is you're reducing it down to something a way too oversimplistic. And then also the idea that you could just talk about it. And then that also might just make it go away. Right. Yeah. If I, if
0: I can't get out of bed in the morning, I can't get to see my therapist. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Totally. Totally.
1: And that's, A really great conversation to be having in mental health spaces to realize that it could be a little bit of both. Somebody might just be, you know, chemically imbalanced. Somebody, it might just be totally situational for somebody. It might just literally be their work. And the fact that they have to go to work five days out of the week, you know, eight hours a day that might be putting them into a depressed headspace. And so...
0: Well, and the reality too, though, is that it's... I've never met anybody where it was one or the other. That it's right. always a, a blend of all of them. Absolutely. Uh, and that they impact each other as well. That your your way of thinking impacts your brain. Your brain obviously impacts your way of thinking. Totally, And that you can totally. change everything. Yeah, <laughs> right?
1: yeah, 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 absolutely. And I don't think that we... Oh, yeah, I would love to bring this up. I don't think that we celebrate people's recovery periods as mm-hmm. as much as we should. I think we oftentimes get stuck on people that the therapy isn't working or the medication yeah. isn't working and those times are the loudest stories and they should be. They rightfully they should be because we should be figuring out solutions. Sure, we should be ex- like yeah. exploring different different therapies for them. You know, whether or not it's it's ecotherapy or DBT or CBT or psychotherapy yeah. or whatever it is, we should be figuring out different different solutions or medications or doses or whatever but on the other hand you never hear too much about the people that are like yeah i'm fu- i i did psychotherapy for a year yeah. and a half or or i i've taken an antidepressant or an antipsychotic and i'm fine and i, and I I'm I've, doing s- it. I've said
0: exactly this to people before and most people don't believe me that recovery is more common than it's not the stories oh God, that yeah. you're seeing are people oh, that it, it's the you. really tragic ones yes Absolutely. but it's not yeah. representative of the majority and actually totally. very often People don't even get any kind of intervention or help. Mm-hmm. Some people just bear it out through grit. That's not I, know, what I would recommend. I know, I know. But oh yeah, I've been there oh too. Oh my god, absolutely. But people yeah. recover all the time, so yeah. it doesn't have to be a life sentence. That that's a right. lie. You yeah. don't have to necessarily live absolutely. with this for your entire life.
1: Absolutely. And there, so many people have. Been able to get to that other side to yeah. like see the light, and then yeah. they're going, they're off, living their life, and, and then we never hear about. This them, is it, and you
0: <laughs> you don't know that you can get there until yeah. you do. Yeah, <laughs> you totally, totally. I never would have believed me as a fifteen year old kid that I would someday yeah, get through. Same, it, right?
1: same. And actually, somebody asked me um, in an interview that I had a couple months ago, and I was very specific with how I answered it. They said, "How important was it for you to get a diagnosis?" Mm-hmm. And I. I just I knew that I had to answer it very specifically because I said so what I said was it wasn't so much the diagnosis. It was just the fact that somebody was listening to me right. because too often I think that we rely too much on a diagnosis yeah. or we rely on the fact that I am a person that has anxiety. Sure. I am a depressed. Well, we person want to
0: be that... included in the community. I think
1: totally. And that community gives us a sense of connection. Yeah. So if you do recover and you are no longer a part of that community what happens? And and I think that's a great conversation to be having in our spaces as well because yeah. for so long I didn't know who I was without my my problems, yeah. without my anxieties or without my body image issues or without my eating issues. I didn't know who I was. And now that I've stepped into Kenzie without those things because I would say that I am in recovery. You know, mm-hmm. I don't I don't struggle with anxiety. It's not chronic. It doesn't, you know, interfere with my day. I don't struggle with my body image and eating as well.
0: Congratulations. That's a huge step. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, it's been definitely hard, but definitely worth it. Um, but, it's been scary, like, yeah. not being able to be involved in those commun or not t- almost like v- a victim of myself. Like, I didn't right. know who I was without th- those Stay struggles. Yeah. Have you gotten
0: uh, anything yet from people within the community? Well, what does she know? She doesn't deal with what we deal with.
1: I. Uh, Okay, surprisingly, no, because <laughs> no. Me, I'm pretty good at staying in my own life. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I've, I've yeah. certainly, I've experienced this, actually. Yeah. Uh, when What's the TED experience? Talk first came out, oh. it was that, oh, look at this guy on this stage, and, and he looks good, and he's well-spoken, and all this right. stuff. I almost threw up right before oh. I came on stage. Yeah, of course, <laughs> right? so, of course. But it's that image that people, people perceive, that just because yeah. they don't see you struggling actively struggling right here and right now. Yeah then there's no there it's that zoomed in on that one oh, little that's moment such a great, right?
1: yeah and having that myopic perspective is so damaging because yeah. then you actually you limit the scope of being human right. in general i mean you just if you look at any single person they could have a story of the story of their life could blow your mind right. and if you look at people that are predominant like if you look at white populations that they are are middle class and they seem to have it all they live in the suburbs they have 2.5 kids they have you know white picket fence and a golden retriever the majority of them do have low-grade depression or low-grade anxiety you know statistically speaking like that to me is astounding and the fact that we're thinking that people can't feel pain or the fact that we would judge people's on people on their appearance and assume that they wouldn't be going through something is harmful and it's harmful to both To communities, marginalized communities. I mean, like the fact that there is medical racism, you know, that's ridiculous. That's 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 terrible. That's something we should be, you know, totally writing out of our history. And so I think about those types of things, the way that we aesthetically judge people. And I'm like, wow, I have no idea what anybody's story is. And I can't ever it just because somebody would walk in here and they might look slightly differently than me. I might have this preconceived notion of them, but I actually have no idea who they are. Right. And so instead of judging them, I could actually try to figure out who they are or I could ask them, ask them a question <laughs> yes. about talk their to life. Yes. Yeah. Totally, totally. But w- when, um, you know, uh, in the past when I've watched your TED talk, I have thought about why oh, I wonder if he's gotten any comments mm-hmm. about the fact that he's in a place where he is well put together and he is articulate and he is telling his story from a place of being much right. more secure and much more confident and, you know, in not being in a place where telling the story would make you fall back into right. into that situation. Well, I think
0: that, you know, out of necessity, and maybe you've experienced this too, people with who have experienced challenges in their mental health learn to become very good actors at some point. Right. You know, I don't identify yeah. as an actor by any means, but I know yeah. how to... To communicate certain experiences, I'm not always going to be crying and sad with mm. my black cloak on. Mm-hmm. And This yeah. takes a lot of different forms, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: totally, totally. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and
0: even in recovery, you know, yeah. I, I relapse once a year or so, but then mm-hmm. I get through it because I know that's my pattern and I'll be fine.
1: Yeah, But right. that doesn't mean
0: that I don't still experience it from
1: Right, time to time. right, right, right. Totally. And I think, like, it's a really good, it's a good lesson to show people that somebody could look, could be articulate and could be well-dressed and right. still... Have dealt with that or still be dealing with something like that, something as severe. I
0: wonder, I've wondered this before too, and we probably should wrap up at some point, but. um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, We can
1: try, we can do that. We can try. (laughs) But I
0: wonder how much of it, too, not to over psychoanalyze. Mm -hmm. Our audiences. Yeah. But how much of it is. (laughs) But
1: let's do that. But let's do that anyway. Yeah. I don't want to do this, but
0: here we're we're about to do it. it. Uh, No, but I wonder how much of it. And I try to remind myself of this um, is people projecting some of that black and white thinking, some of the stuff that they're struggling with Mm -hmm. and then projecting it out onto the world as though that's the real world, Mm. you know, projecting out that person must be okay because they look okay mm-hmm. or that that thing totally. must be terrible because it looks or sounds or feels terrible
1: right really almost yeah. everything
0: is way more complicated than that right?
1: absolutely yeah and again we have to like give up our control of realizing yeah. that we don't we don't actually know we have no mm-hmm. idea what that person's life is like we have absolutely no idea if that community is actually experiencing life happy and carefree right. and totally set and secure you know we we gotta leave those preconceived notions behind but i think that we have to give up an element of we've have the of world control, figured out yeah yeah yeah, yeah totally. just being
0: able to say i, I don't know yeah. i have, I have, no, I have idea. no idea yeah and <laughs> yeah. that's
1: really uncomfortable for a lot of us to say i mean that's uncomfortable for me to say you know but the you the more you practice Saying I don't know, or or saying like that's that's a mystery. The more that yeah. you actually do get to genuinely investigate it, yeah. and then you actually you get to add knowledge into it.
0: Yeah, and that's that openness too that, that you're talking about. Totally. I think that so often I think people resist getting help because that might then admit that they can't do it themselves, that they Absolutely. don't have control. Yeah, or, that they don't yeah. know something.
1: Yeah, exactly. But. That means that you get – yeah, I just – I love the idea of new information and new yeah. knowledge coming through. That I get – that's like my happy space is when somebody teaches me something that I don't know yeah. and or somebody proves me wrong. I love those moments because to me it's just it's – adding, it's adding value into yeah. my, like, library that, like, exists in my head where I'm like, oh, okay, that's how that person actually feels or that's what – that's the fact of, you know, something that I've been wondering for a while. Yeah. So I think if more people practice that, they'd put, be put into – more curious head spaces instead yeah. of more fixed minds, mindsets. I think yeah, that, that
0: growth mindset that, I think curiosity really is a key to recovery. Oh, my saying, God. I, I don't know what, totally. this, what this is going to do for me. I don't know yeah. why this is brought into my life mm-hmm. or what it's supposed to teach mm-hmm. me. But I'm willing to listen and let it teach me something.
1: Absolutely. I've, I've mentioned that before to people that I don't think that I don't think the antidote to depression or anxiety or just just hard, just pain, just like struggling in general is necessarily happiness, but it, rather being curious yeah. and If you ever ask a depressed person or if you ever ask somebody who's going through a rough time, like, what are you curious about in the world? Like, you could see their face light up in so many different ways. And if they say, I'm not curious about the world, you could have a conversation of things that you're curious about. And just that, it just elevates you just past, you know, even if it's one or two percent, just past a feeling of struggle and pain. It puts you into a different headspace. It just makes you think just a little bit with your imagination and i think that the power of imagination the power of curiosity can be life-changing for sure
0: kenzie Bruna. thank you so, <laughs> thank you so much what a wonderful <laughs> note to end on that was thanks, uh, that was a, a really um beautiful piece of advice and i'm, I'm so grateful uh, for the work that you're doing for all of the people that you're inspiring thank you're, you you're doing likewise
1: work. thank you so much appreciate it thanks, thanks. so much for having me
0: Okay, that's my conversation with Kenzie Brenna. Uh, that was, uh, that's was that been one of my favorites so far. I really enjoyed talking to her. And go over and follow her on uh, Instagram especially, all her, all of her social media uh, platforms, but Instagram especially, and to be really inspired by the great work that she does. So thank you, for Kenzie, for uh, for coming in and, and sharing that with us. Um, I hope you're enjoying the, the show so far. All of our episodes are up weekly on Mondays. Uh, so please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts, but especially to Apple Podcasts guests uh, subscribe to the show uh, leave us a rating leave some comments if you like that stuff really makes a difference and and really helps to support the show so, uh, so head over there do that subscribe and leave a rating uh, you can follow me on twitter facebook instagram wherever else you can find me at mark hennick that's at m-a-r-k-h-e-n-i-c-k you can also go over to dot com slash so called normal for more updates about the show Uh, If you want some free psychotherapy, (laughs) free trial of psychotherapy anyway, uh, to give it a try, see how you like it. Uh, It's online, safe, effective. You can do it from home in your underwear if you want. Just make sure that the camera's pointed at your face and not at your underwear because you don't want to freak out your therapist. But anyway, that's a different thing. (laughs) If you want to try it, is my point, which I think you should, go to betterhelp.com. Slash Mark. Enter the promo code Mark. You're going to get uh, some free psychotherapy the, so you can try it out, see if it's right for you. If it is, great. Keep up your subscription and, and uh, pay for it and go. It's actually very affordable, uh, more affordable than, than face-to-face if, if that's an issue for you. Um, but it's also very effective and, and research-backed. Everybody on there is screened. Uh, so head over to BetterHelp.com slash Mark. Uh, enter the promo code Mark and you can get a free trial of some online psychotherapy that's it for us today uh, come back and join us again next Monday uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you as it is always this has been so called normal I'm Mark Henick take care